This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. You're listening to What's Politics, where we delve into political concepts, ideas and questions and explore how they impact all of us. In their 1988 book, Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of Mass Media, Noam Chomsky and Edward S. Herman argued that mass communication media of the US are, and I quote, effective and powerful ideological institutions that carry out a system-supportive propaganda function by reliance on market forces, internalised assumptions and self-censorship, and without overt coercion. The book, which is more than 30 years old now, still rings incredibly true today. In fact, things have probably gotten worse in some ways. But it's not just the US, it's the media across the world, or most parts of the world at least. So on today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at how and why media manufactures consent. As always, joining me on the show is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome back to the show, Peter. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you, Dashan. So let's start with just trying to understand what exactly manufacturing consent means. Well, it's kind of like it sounds. It's the process of attempting to get the population, get public opinion to support uh, whatever it is that uh, the government or the ruling elite want them to believe. So uh, it's the process of, of creating the consent to government policy that the ruling elite, ruling party, uh, etc., want the population to consent to. So, you know, in my introduction, I read this this sort of um, excerpt from the book by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman. What do you think of that, this idea that, you know, the media, effective, powerful, ideological institutions that carry out a system-supportive propaganda function? Well, that's just a, a kind of accurate description of reality. Uh, a, a lot of people who read the book, amazingly to me, uh, interpreted it as a sort of conspiracy theory whereby the government was, you know, giving direct orders to journalists and, and media company owners to toe the line and that, it, you know, that's so fanciful that doesn't actually happen in reality. But if you actually read the book, you'll, you'll see uh, both authors explicitly explain that their theory is a structural theory. It's not a they're, they're not positing a, a conspiracy whereby, you know, a few powerful people are, are giving orders that the media dutifully follows out. They, they are laying out aspects of the, the political economic structure that constrain uh, media companies and journalists and influence the kind of coverage that they give. So let's talk about the media and, and how it operates. What would you say are the factors that shape media content? Well, I mean, we, we could start with the five filters in the book, uh, Manufacturing Consent. And, and the first is ownership. Uh, who owns the massive conglomerates that in turn own all of the media outlets that we all know and, and sometimes use? So this filter is basically uh, the 
ideology of the owners of these companies will be expressed in terms of who they hire and who they don't hire. What, what perspectives do they allow to be represented in newsrooms and among editors? So again, this is, this is a, a structural pressure. Uh, Chomsky himself actually had an interview with a BBC journalist where he explained this quite well, where the BBC journalist uh, said something like, you know, he was, he was upset at the implication that he was not free to say whatever he wanted to say. He said, no, I'm completely free. Nobody's telling me what to say. And Chomsky responds with, of course, that's what you feel. Uh, The point is, is that if you thought differently from how you do actually think, you wouldn't be sitting here today interviewing me as a BBC journalist. So that's the the ownership uh, filter. Then you have the advertising filter. It's related to the the fact that we have commercialized media systems uh, all around the world as opposed to public service media systems where uh, media outlets are given uh, grants and funding from the government with with no strings attached, ideally. Uh, But in commercialized media systems, media outlets, journalistic outlets, are a business. And like any business, they have to worry about their bottom line. Their customers are not the, the readers or the viewers of their programming. The readers and the viewers are the product that they sell to their actual customers, which are the advertisers. So if you are uh, uh, you know, providing coverage, let's say, of an uh, oil rig disaster, but your, uh, a major advertiser is an oil company, uh, they will try to exert pressure on you to make sure that your coverage of that oil rig disaster does not make their company uh, look bad and cause them to lose money. Uh, now, perhaps a, a, an outlet, the editors, the journalists working there can resist that pressure, but that pressure exists regardless, and it's, it's somewhat fanciful to think that uh, journalists and editors will always resist pressure from uh, very important customers, their advertisers. Uh, then the uh, another source is um, or another uh, filter is sourcing. Uh, who are the people that journalists go to to get analysis on current events? Uh, in the U.S. media, there's a, a very clear bias in favor of uh, government officials, uh, and that's related to the the commercialization of media. Because if you are say covering the uh, the violence in Israel Palestine right now. Uh, you would want to get, you know, someone who knows a lot about the the conflict, the region, the history, et cetera. You could, as a, a journalist, you know, seek out uh, a bunch of different voices of different ideological perspectives, go to universities, go to activist groups. But if you do that, then you can get the criticism that you are trying to launder your own view by finding a, a source that uh, agrees with you. Right. Whereas if you just go to the State Department or the Pentagon at a, a press briefing and they give you a, a nice thick uh, sheet of paper with lots of facts, history, presentation, arguments, etc., and you report on the statements of that uh, official, you're going to be insulated from any criticism that you are uh, uh, attempting to launder your own views since you're simply reporting on official sources. Uh, and it's also cheaper for you to do so because you don't need to spend all of those hours, billable, you know, uh, uh, hours that cost money right. you know, uh, to go seek out different information, different perspectives. So you have uh, source bias. The fourth filter they bring up is flack. And by that, they mean 
uh, organized activist groups, pressure groups, uh, even uh, uh, astroturf groups, that is fake grassroots groups that are uh, funded by uh, well-heeled uh, corporations and, and uh, perhaps even political action committees, etc. And the, the function of FLAC is to try to keep journalists and media outlets in line. So if you have, uh, let's say, a lot of coverage of uh, climate change and your journalists are talking about the necessity of uh, ending, essentially, the fossil fuel industry in its current form, well, the fossil fuel industry can fight back by funding a bunch of astroturf organizations that will inundate your media outlet with angry uh, letters and threats to boycott. Uh, so that uh, kind of pressure does have an effect on media coverage. If you're a journalist, you just you don't want to get inundated with uh, hateful message, messages. And uh, from a business perspective, you don't want to uh, run the risk of a, of a boycott with a lot of people boycotting the advertisers that are your main customers. And then the last uh, filter that they mentioned in that book was uh, anti-communism, because when they wrote the book, it was at the very end of the, the Cold War, and this really, you know, you, you can kind of uh, extract away from that. It's not anti-communism as a, a kind of timeless uh, a force or pressure that op operates on the media. It's really more uh, the conventional wisdom, the, the, the enemy du jour, the enemy of the day, whatever the, the major threat uh, that the ruling elite is, is worried about or is trying to get the population worried about. That's another uh, filter. You could just call it ideology, the, the dominant ideology in a given country. That's going to affect the, the media system as well. So during the Cold War, obviously, the, that ideology was primarily anti-communism. But in the 2000s, it was clearly uh, Islamophobia or terrorism, uh, the, the fear of uh, uh, terrorist groups. And that also powerfully influences how the, the media uh, covers stories, not just because the individual journalists are likely to share the, the dominant ideology in the country, but also because they know that their main customers, advertisers, and their product, their viewers, uh, are likely to share that same ideology as well. So they don't want to offend either their product, the viewers, or their customers, the advertisers. So for many people, Witnessing the likes of CNN and BBC's coverage of the genocide in, in Palestine over the past three weeks is sort of like a, a huge um, a sort of a culture shock, a, a moment of awakening, or some might say baptism by fire, because many are shocked um, at the lies, the half-truths, and the skewed perspective um, from what is supposed to be the gold standard for journalism in a country that is a bastion of freedom of speech. At least this is the perception um, among the people, right? I think people are used to saying, you know, Fox News is fake news, right? If you are somewhat of a progressive around the world, I think, you know, everybody hates Fox News, which is understandable why, why people would hate Fox News, right? But People also at the same time think that CNN, your MSNBC, your MSNBCs, your BBC in the in the UK are all top tier journalism. It is the benchmark of quality journalism. What are your thoughts mm. on this? Well, I have to say I'm kind of surprised at the surprise. Uh, but then again, I'm, I'm <laughs> someone who grew up in the in the US with these channels and uh, spent many years studying the, the political economy of media and media studies more broadly. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I just can't help but be surprised at the surprise. But for those who who are surprised, I guess I would just say that uh, you should really delve into the the political economy of media scholarship. Uh, there's there's a lot of of really good analysis in that uh, body of scholarly literature. You know, you could start with Manufacturing Consent, that book, but that book is from what 1988. Uh, since then, there's been uh, plenty of additional uh, research on these same questions. So it, it really shouldn't be a surprise uh, to anyone who's familiar with the political economy of media that these major outlets from CNN to, you know, all the networks in the U.S. Uh, have this very clear pro-Israeli government bias. It's It's been this way uh, for decades now. So for those just catching on to that, um, you know, welcome. Uh, but <laughs> I would also just say, you know, you should you should do a little remedial reading. Earlier, you gave a good overview of, of the five pillars mentioned in, in Chomsky's book, right? But just to dive into it a little bit, how do market forces constrain independent and alternative journalism? That's a good question. Um, the term market forces is, is so incredibly broad mm. that... It, it certainly covers everything that's that's relevant, but it, it also somewhat uh, obfuscates the the very the different forces that are right. that are operating here. So, just think like if if you wanted to start your own competitor to CNN, well, the most obvious quote unquote market force that would impede you is that you lack the hundreds of millions of dollars you would need to uh, you know rent the office space, buy the equipment, hire the journalists, uh, pay licensing fees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, in that sense, independent journalism is, is constrained by the market force of not having significant capital. Um, in terms of you know, other areas of, of uh, uh, market pressures, if you are a already existing independent media outlet, say a, a, a website or a social media channel, uh, or even just a commentator on on social media, uh, you know, you're facing the same market force in the sense that you need a lot of capital to uh, really become a competitor to all of the established legacy media companies. Um, you also have, I guess, this really isn't a market force per se, but you have the social media algorithms that are opaque; they're uh, proprietary information where. We, we don't have access to the algorithms that YouTube or Twitter, et cetera, uh, use. So that's not exactly a market force as such, but it, it's certainly a, an important force that constrains uh, independent media from getting a wider audience that they might then use to get capital to create a outlet that would actually compete with a, you know, a global TV network. Um, so I guess that those would be the, the, the first two things that, that come to mind. Um, but you also, you know, it's it's hard to kind of frame this as a market force. But, you know, all of these channels, they spend a lot of money on advertising, right. advertising themselves. And you might think why. And the answer is really easy. You need to have the idea of this outlet being a good media outlet in the minds of millions and millions of people so that you can get a big audience. If you don't have the the money for advertising, it's going to be exceptionally difficult to get that bit of information into millions of people's uh, heads so that some of them will choose to actually use you. If you don't have that, why is someone going to uh, pay attention to your independent journalism when they don't even know you exist? So 
that I guess would be a another example of a market force that uh, harms the emergence or prevents the emergence of independent journalism uh, that could possibly reach an audience rivaling the audiences of the you know major cable stations and newspapers. Who exactly is trying to? "Quote unquote manufacture consent and why and and the reason I ask this right because I think sometimes people tend to look at things through the lens of quote unquote good guys and bad guys and not just that even the idea of good guys are you know people who appear to dress well speak well are polite and love their pets and bad guys meaning you know serial killers you know things things like that and mm-hmm. so people might wonder why would the quote unquote good guys at, at CNN lie. Surely they won't, right? Or, or people might wonder, you know, why do people like Ben Shapiro, for example, a um, very popular right-wing thought leader who presents himself as someone highly intellectual, um, you know, why would they purposely spread false information or half-truth? So what is it in it for these journalists and so-called thought leaders? What are they getting out of it? To, to kind of bring in a little political psychology here, I doubt that they think that they're lying. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that all of the, the examples you just mentioned from uh, people on CNN to uh, uh, right-wing Twitter personalities, whatever, uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain that they think that they're telling the truth entirely. Uh, it's just you have to keep in mind the power of ignorance and the, the fact that all of us Every single one of us is ignorant of 99.9999999% of knowledge in existence or information in existence. So if you're someone like a, a right-wing uh, uh, online personality, uh, and you're if you're we're talking about the the uh, violence in in Gaza right now, uh, the bombing campaign, etc., you have a lot of people who are simply completely ignorant of the critique of Israeli government policies. Why would they be ignorant? It's really easy to understand because when you're presented with a critique of the Israeli government's policies, someone who already was raised with pro-Israeli government beliefs is going to feel psychological pain. It Literally, it's going to cause them pain just upon uh, glancing at a, a argument against the Israeli government. So instead of thinking to themselves, oh, this makes me feel icky. I don't like this. I'm going to not pay attention. They instead think, you know what? This is complete BS. This is a, a pack of lies. I don't even, I don't, why should I waste my time reading this? Because I know that the opposite is true already. So why would I even bother spending the time to read a bunch of lies? So in their minds, they, they lack all of the, the information, all of the knowledge that, w- that would allow them to see uh, that the Israeli government is currently committing war crimes in Gaza right now. And so they, uh, they'll, they'll, okay, then, then you mentioned, you know, actually spreading falsehoods. So let's take probably the most uh, prominent example of, a, of an early falsehood in this uh, uh, violence. And that is the story that uh, Hamas beheaded 40 babies. Right. Well, that was a claim that, uh, from the accounts I've read, was spread by an Israeli extremist, and a lot of media outlets picked it up. Uh, the Even Biden claimed that he had seen uh, evidence of this before the White House uh, had to walk that back. Now, if you're someone like a you know, right-wing internet personality, you've probably read a lot more about that 
uh, story than than you or I have. Lots of different uh, accounts, people uh, writing op-eds, bringing that up as a piece of evidence for why the IDF is justified in doing just about anything uh, to the people of Gaza. This is something that's been repeated again and again in the media outlets you see. And do you think that those media outlets that, that those people trust ever really focused on the fact that, or as it became known later, that this was uh, a falsehood? I doubt it. I, I seriously doubt it. I think that most likely they just those media outlets stopped discussing it, but they never issued a you know a retraction and said, oh, you know, this turns out to be completely wrong. So that's just one example. Multiply that by dozens, and you can understand how someone can can accumulate an incredibly biased store of information upon which they draw their their uh, policy uh, preferences. You know, in terms of military policy, their their opinions. And so I don't think they're they're consciously lying. I think they're in their own minds. They think they're they're telling the truth entirely. And they don't realize that they're they're spreading falsehoods because they're they're simply they've kept themselves ignorant of the other side's uh, arguments, the other side's evidence, the other side's narrative. Would you say that that's true for most, if not all cases? And the reason I'm pushing um, further into this is because um, on the one hand, I when I see the likes of, let's say, Amy Schumer, you know, going on completely unhinged nonsense on, on Instagram about and, and superbly pro-Israel bias kind of thing, I'm like, yeah, this is most likely very, very ignorant, uh, propagandized since she was a kid, you know, growing up in America and blah, 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 right? But when you look at actual political, so-called political commentators, let's say, or, or people who, who dabbles into this, this realm of politics. So you've got the likes of Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, and all of that. Do you think they are also ignorant, or do they just recognise that most people are ignorant and they can capitalise on people's ignorance um, by spreading these falsehoods, making themselves more popular, you get to sell books, you know, clicks equals money in today's social media landscape. You get to put all sorts of content out, you bring on the eyeballs and you make more and more money out of it. How do you see that? That's a, a plausible interpretation to a certain extent. But then think about what that entails. It means that these uh, commentators online, that they know very well the argument, the narrative on the other side, but they choose to reject it and not even really mention it uh, or, or portray it in any way other than to try to discredit it to their audience. I think much more likely is that they've simply chosen to avoid any source that would threaten their worldview. So again, go back to the, the, the premise. If these people are actually knowledgeable about the critique of the Israeli government or the critique of the Iraq war justification or, or the critique of uh, the U.S. war on Vietnam uh, many years ago. That means that they would have had to spend hours and hours and hours of reading the critical perspective. And then after spending those dozens of hours of absorbing all of the, the evidence all of the argumentation based on the evidence, then they say to themselves, well, you know, this goes against my desire to uh, eliminate communists in Vietnam, or this goes against my desire to uh, secure greater control over oil in, the, uh, in West Asia and in Iraq, 
or this goes against my desire to ethnically cleanse uh, uh, Israel, Palestine of all Arab people. That I just see, you know, for a, psychologically for a psychopath, that's entirely possible. That that is entirely in keeping with the way that a psychopath's brain works. But if you're a, a normal human and you don't have that uh, uh, mental disorder, it seems much more likely that what's going on is these people never spent the hours and hours and hours of reading or perhaps listening to, to lectures. But really, reading is the uh, the best way to, to, to get uh, dense information. I just don't think they did it. So I think in their minds, they're not cynically ignoring the, the counter-argument. They're just ignorant of it. I do have a follow-up question to that, but let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We will continue our discussion after these messages. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to What's Politics on Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan, and with me as always is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're talking about how media manufactures consent. Um, so this conversation will also be available on podcasts, so do subscribe to us. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So Peter, you know, earlier you talked about how it is more probable that the likes of uh, Ben Shapiro and, and these Jordan Petersons are also highly ignorant in their own right rather than taking advantage of the ignorance of the masses. How far would you extend that, um, I wouldn't say defence, but, but that argument? Um, would you also extend it to the likes of Joe Biden? Would you extend it to the likes of Elon Musk and your, and your Jeff Bezos and, and, you know, and your Barack Obamas and your Bill Clintons and your George W. Bush? Are these people all all operating under ignorance as well, or do, do they know exactly what they're doing? But obviously, they cannot say, a, you know, say that, um, you know, because they'll lose popular support. And so they come up with, with half-truths, lies, spin the story to protect their interests. I think they also uh, do what you just mentioned, uh, spin the story in their own interest. But, you know, I, I just can't uh, imagine how uh, it would work other than the, the the way I'm describing, starting from a point of ignorance. You know, this may be because of my own uh, uh, background being raised in a very right-wing, uh, religious, sort of fundamentalist Catholic family. It took me hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of reading so that I could get to the point where I would understand and come to accept the argument against the U.S. war on Vietnam, for instance. Uh, during the, the run-up to the Iraq War, I had to spend hours upon hours upon hours of reading so that I was in the position to oppose the war. Uh, if I had not done that, the information in my immediate environment would all have, have led me to support the war. If I just looked at, read the, the New York Times every day, I would have seen all sorts of stories about you know uh, WMD and, and purported links to al-Qaeda, and same thing with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it, it's impossible. I, I just don't understand how it could be that someone even like Joe Biden 
would fully understand the critique of the Israeli government's policies for decades unless he spent hours upon hours upon hours learning it. And I don't think that uh, politicians do spend very much time uh, reading or, or learning, especially when it comes to uh, perspectives that are outside of the establishment consensus in D.C. You know, if you there's there have been uh, lots of stories about the amount of time that uh, people in Congress spend making phone calls, begging for money. Uh, for some, something like 40 percent of their working hours are spent begging people for money on the phone. If you've got 40 percent of your working hours spent on that, not to mention all of the other things that you have to do as a, a congressperson uh, or any sort of, of political position. What, what time do you have to, to, to learn about perspectives that are reviled and dismissed by fellow members of the political elite in your country? You don't. Now, maybe there'll be some exceptional uh, people that uh, have a more, I don't know, intellectual bend to them and they desire to seek out and really understand contrary to perspectives. Uh, there, there are people in D.C., former government officials, uh, former diplomats that have come to learn the perspective critical of the Israeli government. But you can tell that there's something very different about them. The thing that's different about them is that they spent years of their life abroad in a job where it was part of their job duties to learn the thinking of the people in the country that they were in. So without that learning experience, without the hours of time it takes to learn a perspective that goes against the dominant perspective in your country, I don't think they actually know it. And, and I, I don't see how even a, a Bush or a Biden, uh, I really doubt that they have in their minds a understanding of any of these, these conflicts that I mentioned that is anything like the understanding that you or I or millions of people around the world have who are critical of, you know, the, the U.S. war in Vietnam, Iraq and the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. So where does the buck stop? Because we're talking about the ruling elite trying to manufacture consent, to shore up popular support, to protect their interests. That means there are still interests. There are people who are well aware of these interests, um, well aware of these, how these interests, um, protecting these interests could cause harm towards other parts of society, and they're doing it anyway, no? Yeah, that question is great because it gets kind of to the philosophical heart of the matter, which really uh, revolves around free will. But uh, to avoid that, because that's a... a like a, a freshman dorm room conversation that can last uh, weeks. Um, I would just say, if you're if you're a journalist working at a, a mass media outlet or you're a politician in a position of power, you have an affirmative responsibility to educate yourself about perspectives that are radically opposed to the perspective that your peers uh, uh, share, that uh, you were raised with, etc. So. I, I don't say that these people are ignorant so as to absolve them from any responsibility. Quite the opposite. I, I think that their ignorance is one of their major failings as people with a great deal of power and responsibility in the U.S. or whatever country they're in. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think they have a, a responsibility to put on their big boy pants or their big girl pants and deal with the psychological pain that is inevitable whenever you actually engage with a perspective that differs from your own 
uh, deeply held beliefs. And if you don't do that, then that is malpractice. You remind me of this quote from a pretty average movie, to be honest, Man of Steel, where they said, someone says, you know, ignorance does not equate to innocence. And I think, mm. you know, it reminded me a little bit of that. So now let's talk about, you know, the power of the media in, in shaping public opinion. What is the media's power when it comes to shaping public opinion and political agendas? Well, it's very simple. Again, remember, we start from a position of 100% ignorance about everything. And then over the course of our lives, we learn and learn and learn. But we, we need, there's a, a political scientist uh, who, who put it the best, I thought. He said, facts don't have wings. That is, information doesn't just float through the ether and, and arrive in our brains. Information is a, is a physical thing. Information is always instantiated in some sort of physical medium whether it's the sound waves that I'm uh, uh, sending to you right now, if it's the uh, uh, magnetic pulses on a, on a hard drive, if it's ink on a, on a piece of paper, information is physical. So in order to transmit information, in order to spread knowledge, you need to actually transport it. So the media is, in a, in a very real sense, the logistical system for information. If you only give people... Uh, information that supports one perspective and you exclude information that would support another perspective and you never give people uh, the argument that goes against the, the dominant perspective in a country, then why would you expect anyone to really even question the dominant narrative? Well, I guess you could expect some people. There's some people who kind of naturally have a contrarian streak in them and they'll they'll tend to disagree with whatever the, the dominant belief is in any given society. But outside of, of those kind of natural contrarians, you absolutely require information in order to have uh, different perspectives. Any, any belief, any opinion is fundamentally based on the information that you have in your brain. You have this information and you build a, a narrative explaining those facts. Well, the, the media has the most fundamental power because it is the uh, logistical system for information. And if you prevent some information from being transported via this logistical system, you have an extremely powerful influence over the opinions that people are likely to develop. So I also want to talk to you, Peter, about the power of language in media, because I feel often it's not the very obvious things that may shape a one's perspective, but these subtle things, right? So if you take the issue of Palestine and Israel, what I've noticed is that whenever and um, when, it, when it comes to, you know, the likes of CNN, MSNBC, BBC or Fox News, all of that, right? Um, what I've noticed is whenever an Israeli um, dies, the Western mass media says Israeli civilians get killed by Hamas, right? Mm -hmm. But if a Palestinian dies, the Western mass media says 200 Palestinians died in an explosion that happened in Gaza. They, right. died. they didn't get killed, and you don't know who caused the explosion. I mean, people know, but the framing of the language is like that. Now, this mm -hmm. isn't exactly fake news per se, because there's nothing in those headlines that is wrong per se, that is, uh, you know, that is not factual. But it's, it's about the language, right? What is the impact of how you use language on the way the public interprets these news? 
You, you use the, the exact right word, framing. That's a, a perfect example of, of media frames, the way that a story is uh, glossed or the, the emphasis that a story has. Uh, frames can also inhere in the different sets of information that is presented in the story. But the example you're providing here is is more of the uh, traditional or not traditional, the, the more predominant form of, of, of framing that you see. And that is uh, the way that a story is, is kind of shaded. Uh, if you're saying that uh, Israeli civilians who were killed were murdered by Hamas, that's a very direct framing. It's, it's uh, giving you responsibility. It's uh, focusing attention on the victimization of Israeli civilians. Whereas when you say 100 Palestinians uh, died as a result of an explosion that is not giving you the, the the kind of causal story. It's not it's not assigning responsibility. It's not discussing culpability, and it's a very subtle sort of thing. And like you said, there's nothing technically inaccurate about it. But these two different ways of framing can subtly influence uh, the conclusions that people draw and the opinions that people form as a result of reading these stories. And we have uh, voluminous empirical evidence from experiments on framing showing that these sorts of uh, very small, subtle differences do have a very substantial impact on the opinions people develop as a result of the, the stories they read. And I also um, want to give a, another example because it is not just these big conflicts or, or big wars in which these kinds of skewed perspectives um, tend to happen. It's it's in the everyday news, right? So one thing I've noticed is that, for example, you know, Malaysia is a country that um, currently does not have the GST. And what I tend to notice, and this is not just Malaysia, right? Many, many countries, is that you have a lot of these media in general that quote from a, a certain brand of economists. And what the headlines end up saying is that the government loses among this amount of billions of dollars every year if, because of the lack of GST, because of the lack of GST. And that keeps repeating over and over again. But what that headline doesn't tell you or what the, the article or what these economists are not telling, perhaps, is the billions and billions of revenue that is so-called lost by the government if you don't tax billionaires, if you don't have inheritance tax, if you don't have wealth tax, if you don't have a capital gains tax on the wealthiest people in, in the country, right? What they focus on is that if there is no GST, you tend to lose this amount of money. And I feel that has a power to shape the masses' opinion that we desperately need GST and there's no other way to save the economy, so to speak. What do you mm -hmm. think of that? Yeah, that's, that's another great example. It, it, it shows that the core of uh, commercialized media systems that function as de facto propaganda systems, the way that they skew opinions or manipulate people's beliefs is less through uh, acts of commission but rather more through acts of omission. What, what do you exclude rather than what do you include? So, you know, there's nothing uh, uh, wrong in a, in a normative sense about uh, talking to economists who believe that uh, certain forms of, of taxation are good for an economy and other uh, forms are, are bad for an economy, but it's misleading and it's a disservice to your audience if you exclude economists who have a contrary 
uh, perspective and their own arguments and evidence to back up their contrary perspective. So it's not, I mean, I, I don't know uh, about the, the Malaysian media system, but certainly in the U.S. media system, the propagandistic aspects of it inhere much more in what they omit than in what they transmit, in, in what they exclude rather than what they include. You know, there would be nothing wrong from a, a sort of uh, democratic normative perspective to have uh, the exact same coverage of the, the people victimized in Israel uh, by Hamas on October 7th. It, the problem is, is that they don't do the same type of humanization of the Palestinian victims of IDF bombing. So it again, it's not so much the what is included, it's rather what is excluded. And your economic example is, a, is another good example of that. So the big question then is, how do we fix this problem? Because like you said, it is obviously the the problem is very visible in the country like like the US where you have um, you know many huge um, billionaire owned media channels that just not just um, speak to the US but speak to the rest of the world too I mean all over the world including Malaysia people consume CNN your your MSNBCs and and, and so on and so forth but it is like you said at its core it is about commercial media systems um, and, and uh, media um, you know with, with more advertisement driven sort of thing that that bring about a lot of these pos- uh, problems you know the omission of alternative voices and, and so on and so forth so how do we fix this problem in my book I, I uh, discussed a lot of different media scholars who have put forward suggestions on how to fix our broken uh, commercialized media systems. And there's a lot of different uh, suggestions out there that all seem quite reasonable to me. Uh, to kind of summarize the overall gist, uh, the, the goal would be a democracy-appropriate media system in which uh, perspectives of all different sorts, all sorts of different ideological views, are presented equally for the audience to consider and decide among them. Uh, that's not at all what we have in the, the U.S. media system uh, today. But to get there, uh, a lot of the proposals focus on bolstering the public service core of media systems, that is, the uh, publicly financed media systems that do not have strings attached from the government. Basically, the government uh, offers financing for these public service media outlets, but does not require uh, that outlet to tow a certain line. So it's a it's a, uh, a delicate balance there, and it, it's a, extremely important to make sure that there aren't any strings, you know, obvious or less obvious over that, that funding. And then the ultimate uh, sort of product that we would want to see being produced by a more public service dominated media system is one in which all sorts of different perspectives are given equal weight. Another way of looking at it is uh, multiple frames in every single story. Typically, the way that uh, the media operates in the U.S., you have stories framed in using one frame. One perspective is given on the story predominantly. Maybe there'll be a, a sentence or two here or there about someone with a dissenting view. But the goal of, of having uh, multiple frames in every story is to have equal weight given, equal time given, equal uh, newspaper column inches given to multiple different perspectives on the same story. And then that allows uh, audiences to consider the the evidence that uh, various different perspectives or people representing various different perspectives have 
and to consider them uh, alongside contrary perspectives and then make up their own mind. That's a, a clear uh, democratic value. Uh, but of course, that's not the, the system we have today. So before we wrap this conversation up, how important is it, Peter, for people to support independent media? So um, this could still be perhaps commercial media to, to some extent, but you know, independent um, of, of any particular billionaire or huge conglomerate or you know, an authoritarian government, for example, or, and even more than in just that sort of independent media, how important is it for people to support people-powered media, media that is run solely on the funding of regular people um, through Patreons and, and so on and so forth. For example, um, we have things like Novara Media in the UK and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's that's extremely important. The, you know, journalism doesn't happen in a, in a vacuum. Uh, when you need to have a salary to, to eat and have a, have a home, <laughs> you know, journalists need that just like anyone else. So these, uh, uh, the kinds of media outlets you mentioned, it is really important to support them so that they can continue doing their journalistic work. But I would say even more important is uh, introducing friends, family, uh, associates, uh, uh, peers, etc., to these media outlets so that they uh, adopt them as part of their media diet and to educate them on the importance of having an ideologically diverse media diet. When you're in a, a country like the U.S., the kind of, you know, the, the political establishment's view, whether it's the Democratic variety or the Republican variety, is very well represented. It's, it's, like, uh, it, it's like you're a fish in water, and, <laughs> and that, those perspectives are the water. It's everywhere. Right. So to get, not just to, to support independent outlets, to get uh, friends, family, peers, colleagues, etc., who are completely unaware of their existence and more Moreover, completely unaware that their own media diet is uh, lacking essential diversity. I think both of those are, are quite important. Peter, as always, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Dashim. See you soon. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.